I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24. But I also want you to keep your Bible open to Romans 9, verses 24 to 27. We're going to read Matthew 24, 15 through 21. And then we're going to turn back to Daniel 9 and take a little bit of time to uh, remind ourselves and rehearse some of the information from Daniel 9 so that we can better understand these passages here in Matthew 24, 15 to 21. Matthew 24, verse 15, the Lord Jesus is giving his Olivet Discourse. He's speaking to his disciples on the side of the Mount of Olives. And he has just spoken about the gospel of the kingdom and its preaching to the nations. And in verse 15, he's going to open up what must happen for the gospel of the kingdom to go forth. How is that gospel going to go forth to the nations? Well, now he's going to give them this word in Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. I want to read just verse 24 in beginning. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Our theme this morning is the sovereign God controls all of time and history according to his plan. Our purpose is for people to understand the connections between Matthew 24, verse 15 especially, and following, and then Daniel in these various passages here, 24 to 27. And then our overarching application is God's prophecy and warnings prove true every time. God's prophecy and warnings prove true every time. Time. How many of you had a conversation with someone in some depth about four months ago or so, 
And if I were to bring that person to you, could you recall every single detail of that conversation you had with them four months ago? How many of you could do that? Raise your hand. You young people don't raise your hands. (laughs) The older people don't want to know. Most of us couldn't do that. Some people have a, a mind and an ability to do that, but most of us could not remember all of those details. Well, it's been about four months ago that I preached this passage. And one of the things that I said in this passage when I dealt with it was that we would give a little more detail and perspective once we got into the Olivet Discourse. And to some degree, we're going to do that today. One of the things that I mentioned then, and don't worry, I'm not upset that you don't remember these things. It's okay. One of the things that I mentioned then was that there was an overarching theme in the context that is set up in verse 24. Now, some of you this morning... Uh, you may not remember some of those details and some of the things that I said, but some of you are uh, people who take notes, and you like to do that, and that's a good thing to do. nothing wrong with that. And you're very thoughtful about your notes and taking those notes, and you may flip back when you go home in your little notebook and go back and look at some of those things. You'll say, well, he said some of the same things today he said then. True enough. You'll find that it's there. And the reason I'm going to say it again is because we need to be reminded of it. It's a good thing to be reminded of these things because it gives us the hope that this passage wants us to have. It gives us the hope that the Lord Jesus wanted to give his disciples even in the Olivet Discourse where portions of it seem dark. If we're to take this passage in its full context, we're to remember what Scott said a moment ago. This is set up by Daniel's prayer. Everything we're going to see in 24 to 27 is God giving a context to his answer of Daniel's prayer, not just in the immediate future, but something that is near future to Daniel, something that's kind of near far future to Daniel, and then some things that are far, far future to Daniel. Number one, our overarching point this morning, Daniel prayed extensively regarding hope in God's revelation. Daniel prayed extensively regarding hope in God's revelation. What we see here in verse 24 sets up the scope of God's answering Daniel's prayer. Daniel, letter A, received hope from God through Gabriel. And firstly, this hope is based in decree. Gabriel says to Daniel, Here's how God will answer your prayer. He will do it by his decree. What what do the words of Gabriel set up here for Daniel? Well, firstly, there is a time decreed for hope. Now, the idea of a decree is something that God planned and purposed before the beginning of time. It's God's plan And God, in a sense, spoke it. Now, God doesn't have a mouth and a tongue, a body like men, but to give a context to the idea so that we understand it, God spoke it. Therefore, it is and it will be. Whatever God's decree is, that is His purpose, His will, His plan, And by providence, he sets it into motion and he controls it 
and he purposes it and he works it out and not one part, no matter how minuscule it may be, no matter what part of it is small or big, his decree will happen exactly as he purposed and it will not miss one iota of God's plan. Now, we don't always understand all the details of that because that plan of God, not only is it in eternity past working forward according to God's will and purpose, but that plan is something that in its essence deals with the whole of the cosmos and God ordering every little thing, including the lives of billions of people and how they will interact with one another, come to know each other, how some of them will never know each other. It's an amazing thing to think about God's decree. It's so amazing that it's actually mind-boggling. And it's so mind-boggling to think that God can work out the context of the lives of billions and billions of people, history past, present, and future, because there's over 7 billion, I think, on the earth now, they're saying. 7 billion. That's a lot of people, isn't it? That's a lot of lives. That's a lot of body parts. That's a lot of brains. That's a lot of thoughts coming out of all those brains. That's a lot of words coming out of all those mouths from all those brains saying, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And God's saying, hmm, hmm. You think? You think you'll do that, but you don't know what tomorrow holds, see. It's so mind-boggling that at some moments it can also become discouraging. Maybe even a little dark. And for Daniel, things had become dark. He was seeing things that he had never could have imagined in his mind. These four beasts in his dreams. These nations that would come. He had seen things with Babylon taking over the Jewish state in a way he never could have imagined. In some sense, the Jewish state was in the darkest time of its life. At that moment, Daniel living in it, in captivity himself, and him going, this is dark. It's terrible. And Daniel cries out to God and says, help. We've sinned against you. Now we know how devout Daniel is and how serious he is in the Lord. And yet in his prayer he says, we've sinned, including himself. Daniel knows that the plight of Israel has been put into this place because of Israel's sin against God. They have been idol worshipers for decades upon decades upon decades. And the most or most of that Israel, Israeli people had not worshipped God rightly. 
So God answers this prayer in an overarching way in verse 24 to first of all speak of 70 weeks have been decreed. Something's already been put into place. There's already a plan. Now what I want you to get out of this, if you get nothing else, I want you to see there's hope. Even in the darkness of it, I want you to see there's hope. I want you to be able to look back at these passages. If you can't remember all of the history of it, if you can't remember all the connections of it, I want you to remember that there's hope. And that's what these passages are teaching. And the Lord Jesus is going to extend that hope in Matthew 24. There's a decree, a time decreed for hope. And right then and there, God says it's for your people, Daniel, your people. He says it's for your holy city. And what is this decree for your people and your holy city? It's decreed to finish the transgression. It's decreed to make atonement. Decreed to bring in everlasting righteousness. A decree to fulfill all prophecy to anoint the most holy place. Here we have in this passage, this is the most specific in this particular portion of prophecy, the most specific essence of the prophecy pointing to Christ. Right here. Now, I, I, I want you to note that because I'm going to say some things in a minute that you know some people say, oh, I don't know about that. Okay, that's fine. But note right here, in verse 24, this is the most specific prophecy of Christ. That there's going to be an atonement for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness. See, this is an answer to Daniel's prayer already, isn't it? Because he said, we've sinned. How's this going to be dealt with? He's already prayed. How's this going to work out? Over centuries, we've just sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned and sinned and and now you put us into captivity trying to get our attention and we've sinned and we've sinned and we've sinned and we've sinned. When's it going to stop? And God brings word and says, you know what? It's been decreed that there will be an atonement for iniquity and for everlasting righteousness. He's giving Daniel hope. It may be far future hope. It may be hope that he doesn't understand in its full context, but he's saying to Daniel, I'm telling you, there's hope. Well, number two, there is a broad picture Regarding the decree of hope. 25, 26, and 27 are verses of prophecy that literally fill up in near future or near far future, literally fill up about mm, almost 600 years. Okay? So God's giving indication of things 
in verses 25 and 26 that span about almost 600 years. It's, it's really two sentences to sum up 600 years. Most historians don't do that well at summing up 600 years in two sentences. And that's with reading information about the past and having an understanding of it and summing it up. God is summing up future 600 years in about two sentences. It tells you the omniscience of God, doesn't it? How much he knows. He is all-knowing. It's not intended here to give every single detail for Daniel to fully understand it all. And it's not going to be fully intended when the Lord Jesus speaks in Matthew 24, 15 to 21 for the disciples to understand it all either. But the Lord Jesus is going to give them even a more near future hope than what Daniel will have. We see 70 weeks in verse 24. We see seven weeks in verse 25 and 62 weeks in verse 25. And we have to remember the importance of the context here. The numbers are not as specific mathematically as they are symbolically. The numbers are not as specific mathematically as they are symbolically. Now, some of your notes may reflect that I said something similar to that four months ago. But starting at this point, I'm going to make some additions for further clarification as we move along. Under this idea of the numbers are not as specific mathematically as they are symbolically, first, a total of 70 weeks is what verse 24 says. But just about every scholar recognizes the literal translation of the Hebrew words is 77s. When you see in verse 25 where it says seven weeks, that literal translation is seven sevens. When you see 62 weeks, it's 62 sevens is the literal Hebrew translation. So it doesn't matter how conservative the scholar is, right from the start, even in our English translation, which is a good translation, you have a sense of prophetic symbolism. Because literally the Hebrew words, 77s, what is that trying to say? A lot of scholars move to the idea, and they say 70 weeks. All right, the problem with 70 weeks is, is taking that literal will present all kinds of difficulty. Are we going to say 70 exact seven day periods exactly from the time this is given, then something is going to happen? Well, we look historically, and that's not the way it worked out at all. What we have here is we need to understand the symbolism is saying these are distinct periods of time that God knows, and yet what we need to understand about it is these are periods of time. 
The numbers provide a literal context for the idea of periods of time. It's something that is distinct, but we need to be careful not to try to count days and weeks. Because the kind of destruction that verse 26 is going to talk about doesn't fully happen to Israel until A.D. 70. Well, if you count that in just pure days and pure weeks, then you're going to have real trouble because 70 weeks later, that's not the end of Israel in this large, immense way. So you say, well, you're, you're telling us not to read our Bible literally. No, I'm telling you to read it in the context of literature. There's different genres in the Bible, and we don't read every genre the exact same way. This here is apocalyptic literature, which is given in proper context. There's a difference between historical books and prophetic literature. Genesis is actual history. When God created, he created the earth in a literal six-day, 24-hour day, and on the seventh day, he rested. That's actual history. This here is prophetic literature, apocalyptic, looking to something way forward. And we don't interpret that the exact same way. Poetry, you don't interpret poetry like you would history. There may be historical instances in the poetry, but you never look at a, poet, a piece of poetic literature and interpret it like you're reading an actual history book. Most of the early poets were looking at observation. They would take the observation of what was happening around them and they would put it into some poetic form. But when they put it into that poetic form, it was in the idea of description. Some years ago, I was reading a poet's work on butterflies. At the time, I have to be honest, I, at this time, I don't remember exactly who it was. But as you read the poet's version of butterflies, it was the description and observation of what the poet saw. But if you were to take that and to try to parse it out into a scientific explanation of butterflies and how they formed, it wouldn't work. The poet was not trying to give me everything that happened in the pupa stage from a scientific perspective. If you've ever watched a butterfly go through the stages, some of you have done that with your children, you know it gets a little bit interesting as that butterfly starts to come out, you know, and you look at that. Well, there's observation that you and I look at, but the observation doesn't mean we know every single scientific fact behind it, or if we do, we're not putting into poetry. Most scientists aren't writing scientific material in poetic form. They're not writing poems about DNA. Right? So we have a difference between what is a scientific literature and what is a poetic literature, and we're going to interpret that differently. History, apocalyptic literature, it's okay for us to do that. Matter of fact, the church has been doing that its whole life. Even if you read the early church fathers, they weren't interpreting 
the Psalms like they did Genesis. They were not looking at these prophetic works like Revelation or Daniel in its particular context and interpreting them like they did Genesis. So we're not out of line with the church by doing such a thing. Matter of fact, we're right in line by being careful to look at the literature, the genre that's there. I'm going to read a nonfiction book differently than I read a fiction book. See? Now you say, oh gosh, you spent so much time on that. Why are you? Why do you? Well, I want us to understand, to get it in our brains, to rehearse it in our minds. When you're looking at portions of Scripture like this, you have to ask yourself, what is this? Is this history? Is this prophetic literature and it's apocalyptic in nature? Well, I need to interpret those differently and I need to have a context for it. And so when we see this kind of language and we see that it's about things that are far future, we have to recognize it is apocalyptic literature. So when we see these numbers here, we don't need to get tied up in trying to figure out the exactness of the weeks because in its most literal uh, translation, it would be 77s, 77s, 62 sevens. What am I going to do with that? Am I now going to get my calculator out and start multiplying things? No, I need to be real careful before I do that. Not that we can't look at it, but I need to be really careful. The first thing I need to understand is what Daniel is being told is there are periods of time set up for these things to happen exactly. You won't understand it all. Your people won't be able to understand it all. But think about it. From Daniel's context... There's no way he could understand the Roman Empire and the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 when he's sitting there hearing this somewhere between 600 and 500 B.C. If this is going to be something he has to think about in 550 B.C., the Roman Empire is not even in its context what it will be even 300 years from now. He has no way to think about the Roman Empire in that context. He can't even envision it. So what's he supposed to do with that? We need to be careful not to put back onto Daniel something you and I can understand in the New Covenant context. Daniel's being given hope. He's being given a hope by these numbers but not in the multiplication of these numbers, but in the context of the numbers. God has periods in which he is doing certain things and he is setting it up to where it will happen exactly like he planned, although we may not understand it all. How many of you in 1999 could have envisioned exactly what was going to happen on September 11, 2001. How many of you understood that perfectly in 1999? I'm giving you just, I mean, that's just a couple of years difference, right? I'm giving you a shot at it. How many of you could have thought through that in 1989? Some of you weren't even born. 1979, 
I was six. I was not thinking at six years old about September 11th, right? I might have been thinking about Lincoln Logs or something. Who knows? You see here the importance of this is to give us the idea that God has a plan and a purpose and he has periods of time that's going to be worked out. September the 11th happened on September the 11th because God ordained it to happen. See? Now, political pundits and historians, they're all going to get together and they're going to talk about the human part of that and how it all was this large confluence of the political system going on in this nation and in this nation and this, uh, this leader was working here and this leader was doing this and they're going to talk about all that and they're going to write books and books and books. And matter of fact, there's been tons of books already written on 9-11 and everybody's suggesting why that happened at that particular confluence for those things to happen on that day, that morning, right then and right there. And some of that, there'll be truth behind it. But all of those historians are only looking at information backwards. What Daniel is being shown here is information about something way far forward. Most historians are not able to write their books and go, you know what? At the end of the day, I'm giving you a human perspective of how this historical event happened, but I have to recognize ultimately it happened because this is the timing that God ordained from eternity past. But the Bible has no problem doing that. The Bible has zero problem saying this, God ordained it. And he ordained it in a particular time frame. Well, what is that time frame? Well, the scripture is recognizing here that the kings of other nations will be used. Some of your versions in verse 25 talk about either the anointed one or the anointed prince. Some of your versions use the word Messiah. This is another place we have to be careful and at least recognize the context. When you see that word how many of you have a version that has the word in verse 25, Messiah the Prince? Okay. How many of you have a version that says anointed prince? Okay. All right. If you'll look in the margin of your Bible, uh, those of you who have the word Messiah, you'll see in the margin that it notes there that the most literal translation of that word Messiah is anointed one. We need to see here a perspective that once again, the time period is telling us about particular kings being set up. Just because the word Messiah is being translated here doesn't mean that that word is pointing directly to Christ in its context. Now I've just said to you in verse 24, we've got a prophecy about Christ. But right here, 25 is setting up for us that there will be anointed people, anointed princes that will be used. And one of those is King Cyrus. Because look at the context. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree, remember this is a decree, 
God's decree is being worked out in time, and there's a decree that is made in time to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one or the anointed prince, there will be seven weeks. Daniel's being given prophecy that there will be a decree to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. And I think here this is about Cyrus. He's pointing that this decree will happen. Matter of fact, in Isaiah 45.1, Isaiah notes that God calls Cyrus his anointed one. So it's worked out in prophecy that way that Cyrus is noted as the anointed one in Isaiah 45.1. So what does that tell us? That God had ordained a time that Jerusalem would be restored and rebuilt. And we see in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, did that not happen in the scripture? Now what does that mean for the people right then and there? What's Daniel getting? There is hope, right? You've seen captivity. You've seen Jerusalem destroyed. I'm giving you near future hope that a time is coming that a decree will be made by an anointed one of mine. I'm going to use an earthly king to decree that the city be rebuilt and therefore that is exactly what happened. Cyrus made the decree. It took a long time. It was with great distress. Oh, wait. Look at the end of verse 25. This city is going to be rebuilt again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Now there's two far future things, or two, one near future and one far future thing happening here. He's giving a context that there'll be distress in rebuilding the temple. He's also giving a context that the temple and the rebuilding of it and the city are going to continue to go through distress time and time and time again. If you remember back to Daniel chapter 8, there was this guy called Antiochus Epiphanes IV. He brought all kind of problems. That was at 167 B.C. This is all historical material to us, but to Daniel at the time, he's being given a picture of what is coming. Sure enough, the city was rebuilt, and it was hope. Because everything that the people knew about worshiping God and the sacrificial system and atonement for sins, it was wrapped up into the city and the temple. And they were looking for hope. Would we ever get to go back? Would we ever get to have the sacrifice again? Would we ever get to worship God again? Daniel wanted to know that. Now some, some of the Israelites, they didn't care. Why? Because they were idol worshipers and they were not in the covenant. They weren't believers. They weren't a part of the remnant. But those who were part of the remnant were longing to go to Jerusalem again. And here, the hope is given. And then later, as we read other portions of Scripture, the prophecy is fulfilled. And they are able to go back. They are able to go back. As Scott noted... This is in line also with Jeremiah 29, especially verses 10 through 11. One pastor, theologian, I think wraps this up well. He says, First, the seven weeks are a time when hope returns. 
this segment begins with the going forth of a word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Whether the anointed one is Cyrus or someone else, the word for restoration had to strike an encouraging note for Daniel and his people. There's a possibility that due to the dating of some of this, that it might not have been from Cyrus's decree, it might have come from Nehemiah, and the dating of it could be based on Cyrus or Nehemiah. But either way, both of those figures were in a length and period of time from one another that we have to recognize there was a near future context to this. And it was down the road. But no matter whether you want to argue what exact date or what exact person made the decree, who was the anointed prince, the decree was made and the prophecy was fulfilled because the people got to go back. And the temple was rebuilt. And it happened in great distress. And the time of distress continued to happen because the Jews were constantly battling nations around them. But if all of that seems confusing, just remember, God foretold that there was hope and God gave his people hope and he provided it. Well, in verses 25 to 26, we also see the 62 sevens. We have the seven sevens, which is something near future in the context of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, but we also have the 62 sevens. This is a recognition that there's a period of time where life goes on after the rebuilding of Jerusalem. One writer says there was this distress while it was being rebuilt, and distress continues for the Jews over the next almost 600 years. The prophecy continues to give us an identification. Then after the 62 weeks, the anointed will be cut off. It's something even more distressful that occurs after the 62 weeks. The temple and the city will be destroyed again. Now I want you to think about that. Daniel's getting a prophecy. There's near future hope. And they're going to get to go back. Woo! Right? Yes! We're thankful. Yes! We get to go back. But he's also given this darkness. A glimpse into the far future that it will be destroyed again. The prophecy says this anointed prince of that time will come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations are determined. Now, some take this as a further prophecy of Antiochus IV Epiphanes and his ruin of Jerusalem and the temple around 167 B.C. Yet, that destruction was not fully complete. Antiochus didn't just completely destroy the temple and the city. 
So I don't think that refers to him at all. Because as a matter of fact, the temple stood in the time of Jesus. It was reconstructed or, as several authors noted, it's refurbished by Herod the Great after a massive addition and reworking of the temple somewhere around 19 B.C. So Antiochus IV, as we noted months ago, is merely and usefully a picture for Israel of what is to come in 70 A.D. You thought Antiochus was bad, God's saying to his people. You don't even know how bad it's going to get if you keep following these idols. Well, this gives us a context to begin to understand Jesus' words. When Jesus speaks of the abomination of desolation, just look back at Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. Now, you realize what Jesus is doing now. He's saying, what you've read in the scrolls from the prophecies of Daniel, when you read of the desolation in Daniel's prophecies, I'm now telling you, you will see that desolation. Verse 15, therefore when you see the desolation. That's what he says to these disciples. He says, you. What had been a far future prophecy through Daniel to the people that they really couldn't comprehend in the fullness of it, Jesus, coming forward over 500 years, Jesus is now saying to the disciples, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, whatever you read there, I'm telling you what it is. He says, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in their house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. The Lord Jesus is pulling this forward for them so that they see there's something now near future for the disciples. What was far future for Daniel is now going to be near future and you're going to see it. Your generation will see it. If you don't think Matthew's clear enough, look at Luke. Chapter 21. Same Olivet Discourse recorded by Luke. Luke 21. Or same timing, different wording. If you have a, just want to have a discussion about why the wording of different gospel authors is different. We can have that discussion later. I won't try to deal with that this morning. 
But it's important that they are different. Let me just say that. It gives us different perspective. And look at, look at what Luke records here. Coming from the Lord Jesus, verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Now he goes on to give the wording of Matthew fairly closely after that. But verse 20 is important here. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Well, we know now what was being spoken of. The momentous desolation occurred during the rule and reign of Vespasian, who was a general for Rome and then became Rome's Caesar. And he left his son, Titus, as a Roman general to surround Jerusalem and desolate it. The desolation took place over a two-year period from 68 to 70 AD. During that time, the Roman armies surrounded the city of Jerusalem, had multiple wars with one another back and forth and back and forth. The new portions of the city were broken walls down and these, these Roman soldiers came in and they took over the newer portion of the city. And then once they got in there, the, the Jews continued to hold their ground and they were really nasty in fighting back the Romans. But the Romans began to surround the city and they literally were starving the people. Food lines were cut off. One historian notes there was a drought at the time and there was very little water in the city. Another historian even gives the context that people were so starved they were boiling hay to eat it. And sometimes in very desperate situations they resorted to cannibalism. When Jesus in Matthew 24, 15 speaks of this abomination of desolation, what was far future to Daniel was only some 27 years away for the disciples and their generation. When you think about that excuse me, 30 to 40 year period and them awaiting what would come. Some of the disciples would have already been martyred by this time, but others would have actually witnessed. It makes sense why Jesus told them these things. Look in verse... 16 and 17 of Matthew 24. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in the house. The Lord Jesus is telling them to do the exact opposite of what they had been taught growing up. 
If you lived in and around Jerusalem in any way, people in different regions around Jerusalem would have been taught, if there was going to be war, go to the city. There's fortified walls. Get in that city and stay there. And then from there you can fight your way out. The Lord Jesus is saying, this is going to be so awful, you will not fight your way out. You will die. I'm telling you, flee to the mountains. Don't go to Judea. Don't go to the city. I'm telling you, do the opposite. Those of you within my hearing, Jesus is saying right there, there's a group of people gathered just like you are, and he's looking at them saying, don't go to the city when this happens. You'll hear about it. You'll know it's coming, and you're going to be surrounded. Don't go to the city. Flee to the mountains. Don't come off your housetop looking for anything. Don't go grab a coat. He's saying, don't do it. Go. He's giving them a warning for their very lives' sake. All those who fled to the city in AD 70 were destroyed. Some starved out, some by the sword, some by the arrow, some by the spear. But they were destroyed. And the few that weren't destroyed. And some made it to Masada. By AD 73, they were even destroyed. You see, the Lord Jesus knew exactly what Daniel's prophecy meant. And he was able to speak to those disciples about it exactly to give them a near future context of what was coming through the Roman Empire. What Daniel couldn't understand about Rome, those disciples could get it. They had seen Rome take over other nations. They knew the power of Rome. Part of the reason that the Jewish people exist today is not only because they were dispersed and there were many Jews all over different nations surrounding the Mediterranean, there were Jews who listened to the words of Christ and to the disciples who preached his word that they must flee the city. They lived. All those who went to the city died. Well, I want to leave you with a few observations. Number one, God provides hope for the near and far future. Remember, this is all tied to the visions of the beasts and the four kingdoms and the rulers. Daniel could not have understood all that, but the Lord Jesus applied it properly. God gave hope of future reconciliation in Daniel's day. See, remember, he told him, You're going to get the city back? Have hope. And they did. God gave hope of future reconciliation in the disciples' day. The great portions of the Olivet Discourse is not just this prophecy which we're speaking of here, 
but he's already prophesied to them that he's going to tear down the temple and raise it up in three days. Death, burial, and resurrection. Amen. And God gave hope of future reconciliation in every future day. There's a day coming when he will return and set everything right in reconciliation. Not that he's not working now. He's king now. He's ruling and reigning now. But the fullest of the consummation has not happened yet. And it will. It will. And we're supposed to be waiting and acting just like Daniel and his people. Just like the disciples and the followers of Christ. Be ready. Be watchful. We'll get to that in chapter 25. Number two, God provides hope according to his purpose and glory. God provides hope according to his purpose and glory. We have to recognize that all of this prophecy really provided hope. It's not just about the history and the decree and the math and all of those things. It's really about hope. The hope is for Israel. Their captivity would end. But everything didn't end in the way they were thinking. One pastor theologian wrote, So what is the message of Daniel 9, 24 through 27? You are called to a long obedience. Your people will be sustained in distressing times. And the great hater of God's people sits in the Lord's crosshairs with the date of his demise clearly marked out on God's calendar. Now, I'm not going to get into verse 27 of Daniel 9, but that's verse 27. There's a far future day where the demise of Antichrist is going to be over. Antichrist are like people with cancer that don't realize it. They're dead and don't know it. We got cancer cells running all through our bodies because of sin raging in the context of our our bodies. We're dead and we don't really want to admit it. Antichrists are the same way. There's a coming day, it's over. When the sun returns, it's over. It's just over and they don't know it. They're already in his crosshairs. The calendar day is set. And we're not going to know the time or the hour, but it will happen. Lastly, God provided hope by his sovereignty through his word. Just look at the prophecy of Jesus here in Matthew 24 and how he told the disciples to escape the desolation. Wouldn't you be thankful if somebody knew that there was some calamity staring your family down and they came to you and gave you the right proper warning and said when it when this happens flee wouldn't you be thankful for that that's exactly what the lord jesus did for his followers well since he tells them how to escape that coming near future wrath of the roman empire 
Are we thankful he also tells us how to escape a greater desolation? Repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The greater desolation is not this church building being destroyed. It's not even the desolation of the Twin Towers. The greatest of all desolation is the return of the sun and those who are unbelieving. Have you taken account for your soul? Are you willing to gain the whole world and lose your soul? It'd be sad for you to mistakenly walk away and not see the hope that's provided in God's word. That Christ said if you will repent and believe in him alone to save you from the dead and the guilt of your sin, you can flee eternal condemnation. The worst desolation of all. Because it's an eternal wrath that God will pour out on all those who are unbelieving. And that sounds awful and terrible, and it is. And that sounds, some people say, oh, you're so mean for saying things like that. No, no, I'm just being honest. But I'm providing you hope. I'm asking you, will you think about that hope? Will you repent? Will you trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone to save you from your sins? You may not agree with me on the history and the math of King Cyrus and that and the other. Fair enough. We can have those discussions. But if you don't see the hope that is provided in Daniel's prophecy streaming forward to the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ and the person of Christ and his work, then you miss the very essence of the gospel. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've been merciful and kind and gracious to give us your word. Now we ask that your spirit deal with our souls, that we would heed the truth of your word. Please, Lord, have your spirit work, that we would no longer lean on ourselves or our own understanding, but we would bow the knee to you through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.